Hello and welcome to Found, where we tell you the stories behind the startups and we talk to the entrepreneurs who found them to get the inside scoop. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping just before we begin here. Please rate and review the show. We love it. We love you. We want to hear from you. Also, come see us at Early Stage, which is happening on April 20th. You can use promo code FOUND for a 40% discount on both founder and investor passes. Uh, and that's all I have to tell you. I want to bring on my co-host. Becca Skutak. Hey, Becca. How's it going? It's going well. Nice, slow news week. <laughs> Nothing going on much. <sighs> Glad you're enjoying your conference. Yeah, I don't know when this will be aired, but in case this is a distant memory, which I don't think is at all possible, <laughs> we're no. recording this during the <laughs> Newsweek that includes the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, which is not a laughing matter. Many people negatively affected, but it has been a wild ride, to say the least, in terms of covering it as a news organization, and it'll continue to be. But today, we're going to be talking about something completely different, could not be more different. We're talking to Ben Lamb from Colossal Biosciences, which is the world's first de-extinction company. And that is just as out there as it sounds. Uh, <laughs> but we had a great time talking to Ben, who makes this kind of weird sci-fi stuff surprisingly relatable. So let's go ahead and get into that conversation. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Great. How are you? Doing great. I just got back from vacation, so I'm uh, really well rested, but uh, I might be a little rusty. So take it easy on me. <laughs> no, no, same. I, I've been traveling nonstop. Unfortunately, not for vacation, for work, but yeah, so take it easy on me too. <laughs> okay. So before we get into it, we always like to have people understand the company we're talking about. I suspect a lot of our listeners may have heard of Colossal. You guys have been making waves uh, recently in the headlines, but do you want to give the elevator pitch so people understand uh, what it is you do? Yeah. So Colossal Biosciences, uh, to our knowledge, is the world's first synthetic biology company focused on de-extinction and species preservation. So um, I think most people know of us from our announcements to bring back some of the iconic, you know, megafauna like the woolly mammoth, uh, the thylacine, and then uh, the iconic dodo. So um, I think that's where most people know about us, but we also do a lot of work in uh, conservation and then just developing technologies around synthetic biology as well. Amazing. All right. Um, yeah, I think definitely, the, the, you know, those are the things that come to mind are these extinct species that you want to return to the world when I hear the name. But yeah, it sounds like maybe that's just a hook to hang your hat on and get attention to the other thing. What's more important to you? I, listen, I want to bring these things back just as badly as anyone else. I just want them around. Why not? Right. I want to. Yeah, I, cool. I, I'm pretty, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, we get mixed feedback, right? So like <laughs> what's been crazy when you're doing anything this big and strange and bold, is you're going to get all kinds of feedback. We've been very, very fortunate to get predominantly positive feedback, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's been a testament to our incredible team, our incredible conservation partners, our incredible advisory board. And then I think that we've done a good job and we need to continue to be do a good job to have conversations like this and be really transparent, right? Like, I think that, you know, one of the things that we've seen in this world is like, you know, things can get weird when you're not transparent. So we try to be as transparent as we can be, right? We always can't be with every single technology we were, we're working on. But but our focus is like, to make no mistake, uh, de-extinction. Some people mm. think that 
We are just interested in the tools, but we are interested in the technologies, right? Because that enables some of the work that we're doing for both the extinction conservation and for human healthcare. But fundamentally, you know, our goal and we brand ourselves as the de-extinction company, right? So we do not, if, if we build, you know, billions upon billions of dollars of successful technologies that spin out, but we don't achieve our de-extinction goals, then we don't really see that as success. So we are pretty focused. I'm curious how you guys have picked kind of what species to bring back. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably sort of the more like biological components, maybe things might be easier than others. But I mean, for me, the woolly mammoth, I'm like, it's adorable. Everyone loves Snuffleupagus (laughs) from Sesame Street. So how do you pick these? Yeah, there's definitely like with the woolly mammoth, it's a charismatic species. Like we should all be as hopeful that, you know, 10,000 years from now, we are as left, right? <laughs> we will not be. <laughs> there's not, I know that we will definitely not. So we can, we can aspire to be the mammoth. There's not like Facebook hate groups for mammoths, right? right? It's like there's not teams of people that are like, we hate the woolly mammoth. Why? Why? Why God? And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question. Some of it's been, you know, really strategic and then some of it, you know, has kind of evolved. So, you know, we've announced three species, the mammoth, the thousand, and the dodo, and they almost all have their own kind of unique origin story. So this entire company started as George Church's vision, right? And so he had been working for the last six years before we, we got together on leveraging his tools and technologies, also doing computational biology to bring back the mammoth. And his goal with bringing back the mammoth was actually to reintroduce it back into the wild to help increase the biodiversity and the nitrogen oxygen cycles of the permafrost and help kind of stimulate that ecosystem back into the mammoth deck ecosystem, which was massively more efficient from a carbon sequestration perspective. So he had this goal of doing that. And then he looked at this halo component of, oh, I can also build technologies that help elephants and elephant conservation, right? And so, you know, if you're going to start a synthetic biology company, who better to start it with than George Church? If you're going to start a de-extinction synthetic biology company, probably George Church is at the top of the list too, right? And so uh, given that he had worked on it. And so the mammoth, we also had a close enough phylogenetic relative being the Asian elephant. It's about 99.6% the same. Most people don't realize this, but the Asian elephant is actually closer to a mammoth genetically, even as an African elephant. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is crazy. And like, I didn't know that before I started this. And yet African elephants and Asian elephants can create viable offspring. So we had a really great surrogate and a really great architecture to start with. And because we're working with frozen tissues, even though it's old and degraded, we had a lot of tissue samples so that we could build a reference genome, right? And so there's minimal number of edits that you have to make in order to make and produce the phenotypes of a mammoth and de-extinct those genes in an elephant. So that's why we started there, right? And, you know, George has also been working on it for six years. So it doesn't hurt when you have one of the smartest people on the planet working on something Mm -hmm. for six years to start there. It's a little bit of cheating. You know, once we launched the company, we got so much excitement that we actually had, you know, Andrew Pask, who'd been working in a similar boat as as George. He'd been working on the thylacine for 15 years Mm -hmm. And was like, I have a 91% complete genome. I've done reproductive components of the, with the Dunart, which is the closest phylogenetic relative. It's one of the desiurids. It's the closest to the to the thylacine genetically. So he was like, we have all this stuff. Could you help us? Right. And we're like, okay, well, he was a great guy. He was a great partner. The project inversely fit with the mammoth, right? Because it was like, we had the genome, uh, a really great genome, way more editing than the mammoth, but lots easier gestation. So it was like an inverse project. Mm-hmm. And so... Everything went great with those two projects. We're kind of ahead of schedule than what we originally planned. We spun out Form Bio, which we talked to you guys about. And so things have just been going well. And then our investors came to us and said, 
hey, we're really excited about the technologies. We're really excited about the progress on the mammoth and the thylacine. If we gave you more money, what would be something that you guys would want to go tackle? And we just got flooded with people that were obsessed with the dodo. Sure. And Beth, who's like our lead paleogeneticist, Beth Shapiro, she's incredible. One of the other kind of like geniuses of the ancient DNA world. She had actually built the reference genome for the dodo and sequenced it, you know, and spent the last 20 years on the dodo. So it's like, like, I wish I could tell you it was like super strategically thought out. It's just, we were doing a really great job. Our investor was really happy. We had Beth in the genome. Everyone begged us to do the dodo. We reached out to Mike McGrew, who's actually cultivated primordial germ cells in birds. He's the number one guy in the world and told us he thought that we could get there with pigeons. Mm. So while it doesn't correlate 100% to all the work we're doing on the mammalian side, we thought it was an interesting challenge. And so that's what led to uh, the Dodo. And we got our hands full and we're pretty excited. Yeah, it's almost like it's a Lego ideas portal, but for genetic <laughs> extinct animals. It's like, you do most work, like, and then come and bring the design to us. And we'll be like, yeah, yeah, we'll do this. We'll put this into mass production and bring the thing. Forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll put it together. Yeah. I wish, yeah, I, I wish it was as simple as that, <laughs> but, um, but it's great, you know, and, and we've, we've kind of built the core infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. So we built these functional teams around computational biology, embryology, cellular engineering, animal husbandry, you know, coming from technology. I never thought I'd have a animal husband. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we, we kind of built this infrastructure that now we can take on other projects, both conservation and de-extinction. Now that we've kind of, you know, we've got 87 people at Colossal mm. working full time on these efforts. So. so I think the other question out of that for me is like, how much do you think about the impact of once the animal is there? Like how much does that factor into your decision once it's back and has a stable population or whatever the end goal is, right? Like I know I've read in the past, I can't remember what they are, but like some of the benefits, potential benefits of having mammoths back again, kind of like trouncing the tundra or whatever. But like, does that factor into it or is it more like the work is there and done? And then the dodo too is like, we did that, right? There's the ones where it's like, well, we did that. Maybe we should undo the thing that we clearly did. Yeah. They all have different purposes, right? right? So like with the dodo and the thylacine, most people don't realize this, but with the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger, whatever you want to call it, we like the Australian government actually put a bounty on their heads to eradicate. So two of the three species, unquestionably, we eradicated, right? There's lots of data that suggests that early man uh, hunted and killed mammoths. Now, Mm -hmm. did that drive them solely to extinction? Probably not. Did they have a hand in their extinction? Yes. I mean, we look at uh, across the globe and historically, it's pretty clear that one of the things that mankind's very good at is going somewhere, killing the biggest and slowest stuff, right? Like we've done that all over the planet, right? Like that's what, unfortunately, we've done really well. It's terrible, but we, we, we're very efficient at it. And so and so we, we're very, very thoughtful on that conservation side and that rewilding side. So even though we are more than a decade away from putting mammoths back into, in, into that Arctic environment, we've already, you know, held multiple town halls. We're working with the head of Fish and Wildlife. We're working with indigenous people groups. We're with largest private landowners. It's really important to be really inclusive and work on these things sooner rather than later. And so in the case of Mauritius, you know, it wasn't people like to think like we were on Jimmy Kimmel and people were make, or Jimmy Kimmel was making jokes that we just erratic that humans just killed them because they were dumb. Right. The dodos were dumb. We don't know that. Right. We, we do know that they did eat them. The reason why mo- the dodos actually went extinct was not the eating and killing of them, but was actually the reintroduction uh, or the introduction of these invasive species. Hmm. Uh, the, you know, the dodo was a flightless bird. It laid one egg a year. It laid it on the ground and, you know, in a, in a world where it was fine. 
when you start introducing things that kill and eat those eggs, well, then you can see population declines very, very quickly, yeah. right? And so, and so we're starting to have the conversations with different groups in Mauritius around, okay, looking at the neighboring island, Mauritius and the neighboring islands of Mauritius, you know, what are some of the processes that we can go through and we can help with third-party partners like Rewild and others that we work with to then go in and, and start to remove the invasive species mm -hmm. so that we can reintroduce them. So some of that rewilding benefit, whether it's the carbon sequestration side on the mammoths or just cleaning up an environment and eradicating those invasive species that we added to it are something that, you know, I, I think that adds a different benefit, mm -hmm. but it's a biodiversity benefit right. that, that comes from it. So, And I want to take a step back for just a second, because you mentioned in one of your answers that you're not someone who's been in this space forever, and mm -hmm. you kind of came from the tech world. And I know, I think the one we met, we met at a dinner, this was years ago, you were working at a space company, if I remember correctly, or something in that did, realm. Yeah. So how did you get into this? So my, my superpower is working with much smarter women and men than me, to build, you know, help them set a vision, help them raise capital, and then go build, you know, teams of people much smarter than me. Right? That's kind of like my only thing I'm good at. And yeah, my last company, Hypergiant, which is now ran by uh, Mike Betzer, recruited out of Vista Equity to to run it, so that I could go pursue this. You no, know, I've always been massively curious. And what's funny is, before I started Hypergiant, I was in conversational intelligence, right? So in LP AI system, and then I got, and then I was like, well, how do we apply AI to the intersection of critical infrastructure? space and defense. There's got to be better ways to look at satellite software. There's got to be better ways that you can look at a common operating picture. The challenges that, you know, we saw in oil and gas and the challenges, you know, that we saw in space and the challenges that we saw in defense all kind of seem similar, mm -hmm. right? And they had bad interfaces, bad systems that didn't seem to talk together. So I thought that we could build a system around that that could be more interesting. And so, you know, built Hypergiant and, you know, uh, and it w which was great. But then curiosity is a funny thing and it leads you in lots of weird places. Sometimes great, sometimes not so great. Sometimes <laughs> just weird rabbit holes of information that you now have in your brain forever. So I reached out to George while I was running Hypergiant. I reached out for two reasons. One is I was generally curious about synthetic biology and how we could apply you know, is there, was there a way that we could take some of the lessons learned uh, in my software career and apply them to synthetic biology? And it, that's kind of like what we talked about previously with Form Bio, but it's like, how can we create better interfaces using automation and AI and actually create a better system for bench scientists to achieve, you know, discoveries faster? Can we accelerate the path of discovery through software, right? So that was kind of like the original call. I had just worked on a project at Hypergiant around a photobioreactor. So we had this R&D group that did weird, lots of weird stuff. We had heads up displays, like straight out of like movies. We built this like, uh, we never actually got to launch it, unfortunately, but we actually built a uh, robotic agriculture system that was pretty interesting. So I got really interested in sustainability. So we, we had this like, you know, we were doing well financially. So we started looking at Hypergiant to do different R&D projects. And one of the R&D projects was around carbon sequestration. So it was interesting because I, I kind of got on this call with, you know, this legend, George Church, was talking to him about synthetic biology and software. But then I had just had we our technology, we built this EOS bioreactor, which could sequester as much carbon as 400 trees uh, a year. And, and it ended up getting into the Smithsonian. It was like a super cool experience. Lots of brands were really interested. In it. This is right all right before this global pandemic, mm -hmm. I'm sure you heard of. And then in that, uh, I was like, well, could you genetically modify algae to make it even more efficient. So George, you know, I had George on the phone, right? So I went from software to genetically modified algae. And he started telling me about all the cool projects he cares about. We 
both care a lot about climate change. And then he ended the call, I'll never forget it, with this kind of like Steve Jobs, one more thing. He's like, oh, and by the way, I'm also working to bring back mammoths, boy mammoths, to reintroduce them into the world to make billions of dollars from carbon credits and save the world from climate change. Um, I have to go to my next meeting. And I was like, wait, <laughs> it was like the greatest mic drop or sales pitch, whatever you want to call it. It was amazing because I was absolutely like, you know, just completely dumbfounded on the call at the end of the call. Super, we just had this like, massively productive conversation around synthetic biology software, genetic modification for algae, and then told me a bunch of all these other things he's working on. Then he drops in this like last 30 seconds, this thing, we get off the call. And all I do is I spend all night reading and listening to interviews about George. And I saw this through line of the mammoth. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, he really cares about it. no matter what he was talking about it, the mammoth would come up. And so a week later, I was in his lab. Um, after that meeting, I was pretty in love. And I was like, I have to find someone to run Hypergiant, uh so that I can try to go figure this thing out. That, I mean, that was kind of what I wanted to ask, because you have so many different interests, right? And like, how do you decide, well, this is the one that I really want to focus on? And because it, it sounds like to me, thinking about what myself in that position, I would just be like, well, if this thing works, this is the coolest fucking thing to be associated with out of all these things <laughs> in the history books. And that's basically the decision process. But how did, how do you think about it? Is it like that or simple or what? Well, I wanted to build, I, I built a bunch of companies or a handful of, not much, but a handful of companies that like were really great. You know, they created jobs, they were good culture, you know, they provided value to me and our shareholders and our employees, but I never really created anything that had like value plus impact, mm. right? It was like, it was impactful to them, right. but it wasn't like really impactful to the world. And, you know, it's, it, there's a difference of saying things and doing things, right? And so I've said a thousand times like, oh, we're building this company to change the world, right? It's like, how many times I'm sure you guys have heard the, well, this company is here to change the world. It's just about um, every time. It's a, <laughs> just about yeah, every it's call. Also, yeah. So I think we all say that. And, and, and I think from an entrepreneur perspective, you know, uh, the vast majority of us truly need sure. it, right? Yeah. But not every opportunity, right? Like if you look at like company lifecycle management, the vast majority, at least of my companies, and I can't speak for everybody, but from my experience is like you start a company, you grow, you build a cool culture. Someone, a, a bigger fish is like, ooh, I want to eat that. That's cool. And it eats it. And then that company kind of goes away not that it doesn't add value to the bigger fish yeah but like you know like at, when Accenture bought Chaotic Moon they kind of just destroyed Chaotic Moon but a lot of those great employees still work at Accenture and they've got awesome jobs and it provide their family they're going to be lifelong people there which is great and so and others like moved on and, and whatnot but but fundamentally those don't always exist and so I felt like I got presented as an opportunity as an entrepreneur it's like Hey, by the way, you from you know the universe, you ask and you know, be careful what you wish for and ask for. It's like I got presented this opportunity and I was like, from a prioritization perspective, I wasn't looking for another opportunity. I wasn't looking for another job. I was just generally curious about synthetic biology. And I was like, wow, this is one of those moments where I don't want to look back, you know, 50 years from now, 20 whatever years from now and say, oh, I had this really cool opportunity to potentially make a meaningful impact on society and the world. And I didn't take right. it. Yeah. And so I was like, I don't know if it's the risk factor or the entrepreneur side. I don't know what it is in me, but I was like, I just, I got presented an opportunity and I, I feel like I got this offer to, to be a steward of George's vision. And yeah, I just felt like I had to take it. It's like, you know, if it was like a really cool VR thing, I don't think I would have probably sure. done it. Right. Yeah. But this was something that 
I felt like it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, you know, I felt very honored to have it in front of me. And I was like, I, I just felt called to do it. I don't know how to really explain it. Yeah, I think I get it. I mean, also, you're in a position where you have a history of kind of like standing these things up that uh, like, you know how to do all the pieces that are required that George probably didn't have. And like, I can imagine myself being in that position and then being like, well, I can't fucking help you at all. So uh, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, well, the world always, need, you know, and, and I think there's this other thing. It's just like, you know, we built form bio and I full disclosure, I'll probably build other software sure. companies, but it's not like the world needs another fucking software. Right, company. Right, right, right. It's not like every day it's like, Oh, you like, Oh, here's, here's the, you know, it's Tuesday. We need another <laughs> software company. Right. And so I don't know if you guys hear this at TechCrunch, but there's a lot of software companies. And so <laughs> I think I've come across that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of them were just like, Oh, well, this is a better version of the last yeah, software yeah. company. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. No. Like that's innovation, not, not as much invention, but innovation. And I'm super guilty of that. Right. Like I, it's like, I didn't invent all those things that I worked on. But fundamentally, it was kind of like, you know, this is not another software company. And then my viewpoint is like, you know, step to the plate, really do everything you can to make this massively successful. And then, you know, the worst case scenario, you know, you try for the world. If it doesn't work out, you know, guess what? You go build another software company. Yeah. So I didn't see a lot of downside in approaching it. I, I never, though, thought I'd work this hard. Mm. You know, I feel like I'm as an entrepreneur, I've always worked a lot. But I've never been, uh, one of the things I've realized through this project is I feel like I've learned, one of the things I've learned about myself is that I've always been in love with like technology and building companies. I don't know if I've ever actually been as in love with what the company actually mm. does, yes. right? Mm. So like, I love to talk. So it was like, I built a conversational intelligence chatbot company, probably not the right thing for me to build, mm. right? It's just like, it's not in my like core of who I am, right? And so- I've never been more in love with anything that I've actually like, it's the first time that I've kind of married the process of building that I love with what the actual company does. So it's, it's the first time I've ever experienced that. Yeah. And I'm curious what it's been like now that you've obviously jumped in, you guys are working to kind of toward all of these goals. What is it like to kind of structure a company like this that really is doing something like there's no comparison, like you keep saying with software companies, if you're building a software company, you compare it to the previous version of that task or something sort of yeah. trying mm -hmm. to hit something similar. But like, how do you work to build and staff and kind of set goals and timelines for a company that is such a different concept and also is so technical so far out for so many people? And how do you set that kind of stuff up? Well, I, I think measurability is important, right? And so <laughs> we kind of designed it functionally like a software company. <laughs> so we have species leads, which are almost like our product managers. Oh, wow. I'm not joking. So so I, I like to joke internally. I don't think they think this is funny, but I like to joke that the hardest thing that we've done is not our stem cell reprogramming work, but it's actually reprogramming our biologists to work in JIRA. <laughs> and so, you know, you do somewhat default to what you know. And so I, you know, we, we started to, to design this like a, like a software company where we have kind of like shared services. Like when you think about software, you know, you have certain things like you'll have your product managers and if you're building multiple software lines, you'll have like QA and kind of like IT and security. And you'll have these kind of like cross-functional domain support systems. And then you'll have kind of your like, you know, functional pods, right? is how I build software companies. And so we do the same thing here. And so we have these like functional pods that are around a species. So we have a species lead that I spend a lot of time. So all the species leads report directly into me. I spend a lot of time with them, ensuring they have the resource of what, what they need. And then underneath them, they have dedicated computational biologists 
dedicated cellular engineers. But then we have these cross-functional teams around embryology, animal husbandry, and stem cell reprogramming, doing some of the fluoropotent stem cell work on all the different species that are, are kind of like support functions, mm, right? Because yeah. once they achieve their goal for that side, we, we kind of, you know, move on. So it, it's kind of like org chart, if you erase like their PhDs and names, <laughs> kind of structurally looks like a software company, yeah. like a technology company. Uh, then we have a separate, pro- an actual product group that then kind of just constantly goes to all the biology meetings and is looking and working with our lawyers on the, and technologies on the IP side to say, oh, that could be its own company. That should be something that we patent. That should be something that we open source and give to the world. We kind of give that domain to our vice president of product. So it's, it's structurally like that. And then, and then you know, what's interesting is like when you, whether it's building a mammoth or a thylacine, birds are a little different. But on the mammalian side, we kind of know the steps, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, when I say kind of, like we, we know the, we don't know necessarily like step 348, but we know from step one to step 1000 at birth, what are the big functional areas that you have to go through? And so we organize everything around that. And then we know how long gestation is. So we set a goal, a, a, a six-year goal, and then started to work backward in the timeline. So very similar methodology to, to like how you tackle software and hardware, at least. Yeah. That's cool. So yeah. It's at least structurally, that's structurally how we, how we approached it. And now it's like really efficient that we've been able to add on these other species Then started to add on some conservation work and whatnot, just because we built that kind of like right structure. And we're currently, you know, fingers crossed, we're currently on, on schedule. And so we hope to continue to be. Nice. Yeah. I think like, it's really interesting that you have that shared services layer, but it's like, not like file a ticket with design and then they'll like get you a, yeah. a banner ad. It's like file a ticket with animal husbandry and they'll figure out how to mate these two animals. Or yeah. <laughs> so for example, one of the things that we're working on right now is the Hyrax, which I didn't know Hyrax was a thing. And, but just, but gestationally, it looks kind of, the uh, Hyrax kind of looks nothing like an elephant, but gestationally, it's actually very similar, right? Mm. It has the same kind of like, when I started this, I thought that all animals just kind of grew inside a bag, inside of another biological bag, right. being the, a person or a, an animal or, or whatever. And that's just not the case, right? So there's like, there's actually technically more, but there there's roughly nine placental types. And you're like, that's, you know, so like there, there's like a banded placenta. That's like a big, like an awesome, crazy big belt versus like a full sack. Mm. And so there's all these different things, right? That I didn't, that I didn't even know when you're, we're going into this. So uh, an example, kind of like what you said about the side was, our head of biological sciences who runs our mammoth project, Ariana Husili, you know, she put into the system that she needs uh, us to sequence and do some imaging work on uh, on the gestational side of hyraxes, just because there's so much correlation to elephants. It's a little bit shorter, but it's very, very correlated. Mm-hmm. And so and they're a lot easier to work with because they're not endangered, right? And so it's, it's interesting that these kind of like subtangents that aren't directly related to today's workflow can go into a ticketing system and then another part of the organization can start working on something that may not have an impact for two years, but can get that data. So it's available now. Yeah. So it's cool. It, it, it's, it, you know, uh, we're constantly refining it, but so far it, it, it's good. Cool. So yeah, the other thing you mentioned there that I wanted to dig into a bit is like farm before bio is a great example, but is that kind of the, cause the timelines on this don't make any sense from like a venture perspective necessarily. <laughs> right. So is the goal to continue to to like reach revenue positivity or generate additional revenue possibilities through spin-outs, through patent applications, through things like that? 
Yeah. So what's great is our, you know, our investors like Thomas Tall and Jim Breyer and others, you know, they're long-term and technology hmm. investors. So the, the nice thing is that it's not like we don't have this like, oh, we have to return a fund in three years because right. we're at the end of a fund life cycle, right? That came in. So we do have traditional investment funds in, in it, but some of our kind of biggest supporters and investors that have been here since day one, like like Thomas Tall and, and Jim Breyer have been great because they, they understand the implications of what we're doing in the, in the long term. So we're not pressured to monetize, but we start to think about these things. And so like one of the monetization angles is technology spinouts, right? So that obviously doesn't generate revenue. But, you know, we think that Form Bio is a big play. It's mm-hmm. getting great feedback in the market. I think Kent and Andrew are doing a fantastic job uh, of running it. Brandy there is an absolute genius. So it's like, I feel like we put the right team there. I feel like we really saw a hole. And I think that um, we've got two or three other things like that that I think will come out of Colossal. Because like anytime you look at things from a systems perspective, you really start to understand what's broken. And, you know, what I've seen a lot in academic labs and in these published papers is they'll typically go solve this like one little point solution, mm-hmm. right? Which is great. And that one point solution could but help humanity or help a disease state or could be a trillion dollars, but it's, they're not looking at the whole system. And so when, you, when you're building an extinct species, you're looking at the entire system, right? And so you have to have the computational side, you have to have the embryology side. So we've designed a, a system for large DNA delivery in mammalian cells that's really efficient. Like that's, an app, that's something that could turn into its own biotech company, right? Um, there, even before we get to full ex utero development, kind of artificial womb systems, just the pieces that we're working on now could be helpful for human-based IVF. Hmm. So like, so for example, we designed and built this really interesting system around hydrogels and microfluidics of nutrient design in this cassette system that no one, that we went to the market, no one else had, huh. right? And, and it's showing massive efficiencies in the early embryonic stages of some of the embryo development, way more efficient than anything that we bought off the shelf. And so that itself could be really, really helpful. And so I think the technology spin outside could be really interesting. We're also getting lots of government feedback. Mm-hmm. So like governments are really excited about working with us. Governments are, are you know, spending, you know, hundreds of millions, in some cases, billions of dollars on biodiversity and whatnot. And so is all any of, of that defense, that Ben? Do they want to, do they want to put bio guns inside of the, uh, <laughs> the mammoths? <laughs> Yeah, so, so you're under NDA. <laughs> I understand. So none of the governments we're working for are looking at like you know battle mammoths or anything like that. Blink twice um, if that's actually true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In QTEL, we've been very transparent about this. Once again, I think transparency is key when you're doing anything big and bold like this. In QTEL is one of the investors of Colossal, which sometimes gets people <laughs> calamity and <laughs> conspiracy sure. continues. Yeah. But uh, no, but but In has been fantastic. In the you know the the federal government you know, really cares about how do we apply technology, specifically in the case of us, synthetic biology to solving really hard problems. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at like the world that, that is coming with man-made climate change as it relates not just to biodiversity loss, but also how it relates to food production, carbon sequestration. These are these are big government. These are these are national security topics ac- across the world, not just the United States, yeah. right? So governments aren't asking us to do our government, and other governments aren't asking us to do any weird like battle mammoths, as I mentioned. <laughs> but but they are interested in saying, you know, if we're spending X dollars a year to build, you know, to protect this amount of land to protect this species. And we're spending this much. Could you accelerate mm. that, right? And so, mm. and so, uh, there will be some of those projects that we take on 
And, and we are happy just to provide all of our technologies for species, for conservation for free to the world. That's part of our mission. Anything that we develop for conservation, we want conservationists to use. But there may be certain cases where a government says, hey, yeah, we get it, but some of this is really hard and this species is really critically endangered. This, this is key to us. Can you help us, like, you know, create a breedable population that we can then go and re- reintroduce? So cool. we're having those conversations. And then there is a massive biodiversity and carbon sequestration component to the business long term with rewilding, right? And so I think that we have lots of different avenues to monetize kind of along the path that, you know, it, it's funny, a lot of people ask us about monetization. And our biggest concern is actually let's deliver the animals. Right. <laughs> um, the monetization side isn't the thing that, that keeps us up at night, right? And I'm curious, because we've talked a lot about sort of the positive feedback you guys have gotten with a lot of these projects. But I'm sure, I mean, on the surface level, you're going to get a lot of people who just don't get this or who think maybe funds should be used in other ways. And kind of yeah. what have you heard? Or and from sort all of like, sides. How do you people respond? are like, it's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong because of God yeah. or it's wrong because of nature. Yeah. Like everybody, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we... So first and foremost, we love that feedback. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds weird, you know, coming as a technology CEO, I haven't always loved every kind of feedback that I've gotten at different businesses. But what's interesting about this is that we look at this while we're doing this in the US is that this is kind of a world first, like the yes, like the moon landing was done, you know, by by the US, but it was a it was a humanity achievement, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm sure they got lots of different feedback along the way, right? And and we have too, and I'll I'll talk some about that feedback. But it's we think it's really fundamental that you know you can learn a lot more from a critic than you can someone that just says, "Oh, that's amazing," right? We do have a lot of people that are like the Jurassic Park crowd that's just like, "This is amazing!" Like, let's do dinosaurs. We love you. The end, right? Like, so <laughs> right. we we, we get a lot of that. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And, and so like, don't don't we love that? We we absolutely love that. But then, but but you can learn a lot, like from critics. So some of our earliest critics that are the scientific community are now actually on our scientific advisory mm. board. Lou McDonald's like, yeah, you don't have enough reference genome, you don't have enough mammoth samples to build a reference genome. He was totally right. It was completely great feedback. So we reached out to him, started talking to him, and then he's now one of our most active scientific advisors, right? You know, Beth Shapiro, same way, right? And so we tend to lean into criticism as long as it's informed criticism. The thing that drives me crazy is is when you get like, I'm a curator at some random museum. I don't know anything about genetics, but this just isn't possible. The end. I'm Mm. like, that's as helpful as someone just saying, you should do this, right? It's like, yeah, it's like, like, it's just, if, if you're an informed critic and you have real feedback on like, like the conservation aspects, like what, what you mentioned, Becca, it's like, could money be better spent somewhere Mm -hmm. else? Right. Mm -hmm. Those are really important questions. And those are important feedbacks. And it isn't our job to persuade anybody or convince anybody. I think it's our job to be transparent and educate people. It's, it's our job to educate people on what we're doing and why we're doing it. And a lot of times we're going to hear really great negative feedback. We're like, oh, we didn't think about right. that. And as long as we're honest, I'm like, we didn't think about that, but let us go come back to you on that. You know, we got a lot of feedback at launch about Alaska. You know, the people were like, well, have you been to Alaska and George had been to Siberia and, and met with the Pleistocene Park guys and, and, and spent years working with them. But he's like, but, you know, several big feedbacks we got around launch is like, Ben, have you gone and sat down with indigenous people groups in Alaska? Ha- have you ever been to Alaska? Like, and these were the questions I got. I was like, it's a really good point. Everyone can think about how Alaska feels about it. But has anyone ever talked to someone not on not on social media from Alaska, sure. but has anyone gone and sat down in the governor's office of Alaska and had this conversation? And so I was like, okay, I got to get on a plane and I need to go sit down with people and listen to people. 
we, we try to be really receptive, but, but to your, to your other question about like, what are some of the feedbacks? One of the feedbacks we got is like, shouldn't this money just go, are you taking money away from conservation? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't this money just go into conservation? That's kind of one of the biggest feedbacks we got. And, and what, once again, not against software, because several other software companies have started them on the board of, not against software <laughs> at all, but it's like, you know, I kind of like to think there's one less shitty software company in the world because of right. us, because, you know, we went and raised money from traditionally software technology people, yeah. right? Like while Thomas Toll cares a lot about uh, conservation, he's a technology investor, right? And the same thing with Jim Breyer, same thing with Tim Draper, the same thing, like, it's a same thing with Bold. So we went out and like, we went and focused on technology investors and we're bringing new capital into conservation and we're developing tools that like, you know, we are losing, we as humanity are losing, have a losing battle against loss of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. We're going to lose up to 50% of biodiversity between now and 2050. We don't do anything. But there was just a story, I think, in the New Yorker like a week ago that's like just protecting the land, which we totally should do. And con- current conservation should continue to do these things. It just isn't fast sure, enough, yeah. right? Like, you know, we, we just met with the Sumatran rhino, uh, we have this Sumatran rhino task force that we're putting together in partnership with the Indonesian government and Leonardo DiCaprio's Rewild and others. It's funny, I, I literally just got a FedEx of the sign, our signed MOU literally today, yeah, nice. um, back from Indonesia. And it's one of those things that like, you know, there, there's less than 50 left. It will go the way of the northern white rhino if we don't do anything, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, that's where you have to start looking at like, you know, assisted reproductive technologies, like, you know, how do we create gametes? How do we look at new t- ways of doing IVF? How do we start looking at, you know, introducing genetic diversity via CRISPR and other tools and then doing cloning? So there's lots of ways that we can save some of these critically endangered keystone species. And that's not going to work at scale for every single animal, but it can work for the keystone species. Mm-hmm. And so there's about 100 keystone species around the world that are fundamental to their ecosystem that are in trouble. And so if we just focus on those guys, then I think there's a real, you know, opportunity to leverage these technologies to massively, you know, five, 10 X their numbers. And we can start there. So one of the big criticisms is on the money front. And, you know, I think we're showing that some of these tools and technologies can be massive accelerants where current conservation just isn't as fast Mm -hmm. as human invasiveness is. Yeah, I think, yeah, those are great points. Like a lot of people think of it as a fixed sort of like, 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 like there's some kind of fixed budget overall for like conservation projects. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a secret fixed budget. Right. Like I, I have got, you know, you, you mentioned this, uh, Gerald, like we, we've got the God question. And it's like, well, aren't you playing God? It's like, well, didn't we play God when we killed all of the thylacines? Sure. Like, wasn't that, wasn't, right. wasn't that? No, no, no. God? That was like, part of the plan. Ben, come on. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah. It's like, like, was like, this part I, is you it. know, like it's clear. I, I take, I take cholesterol medication. Right. Does that mean that I'm playing God with right. myself? Like, like, oh, I should just let this kind of naturally play out or, or antibiotics are kind of playing like, God too. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. You, yeah. I feel like we like completely destroy like the entire, you know, millions of acres of the, of the rainforest, but that's not playing. God. Yeah. So, so I think, I think that if we have the opportunity to leverage these tools to reverse the wrongs, then I feel like even if you come from that argument, I feel like this, the flip side of that coin is then, you know, it's like, then we have a stewardship of this planet, regardless of who gave it to us. Right. Right. And so we should do everything we can to make it better, especially when we're the ones fucking it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, you also have a bit of the NASA thing going on too, which is like, why send these people up? And it's like, well, 
because we generated so many useful technologies in doing so, right? In the course of doing so. And that's what you kind of were alluding to. And we have to push humanity forward, right? right. Like we don't like, we all saw it COVID, like just sitting at home watching Netflix isn't great for everybody, right? People get weirder ideas, I think. So it's like, we need to, we need to do things that advance humanity, advance technologies. You know, I was at this like a group discussion roundtable this weekend in, in Vail and it's crazy, you know, just like how short time ago things were just so different. And that's what people don't realize. But things like the moon landing, things like the extinction, things like the discovery uh, in, in the creation of like the bit with the computer, you know, things like civil rights, mm. like not that long ago, things were really weird mm-hmm. and really different. Like people would smoke on airplanes and it's like oxygen yeah. thing <laughs> in the sky. Like people would smoke on airplanes. Right. And, you know, I got to spend some time with some of the leading women that like, you know, that, you know, are some of the big coaches that like won the World Cup. Well, you know, when she was growing up, she couldn't play soccer because she was female. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that long no. ago. Like, and so the only reason why the, like we as humanity have to keep pushing, you know, the boundaries forward because you know, even a hundred years ago, things were pretty weird. Right. Yeah. And so I feel like we're in a much better state today than we were a hundred years ago. And now we're starting to realize that, oh, maybe cutting down all the forests and killing all the animals wasn't the best idea. What can we start to do about it? Right. So, and all those ideas that you just mentioned, like they don't come from seeking a 10% improvement in the efficiency of uh, software oh, yeah. XYZ, right? They come from an overall ambition and a, like a grasping for big things, right? Yeah. 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 Like looking at the system, seeing what's wrong. I mean, I mean, if you look at like what Elon's done with, with SpaceX, like, you know, ULA and others have been putting, you know, stuff in space for quite time, a long time. My grandmother didn't know about those. Right. But she didn't. She's awesome. She didn't know about any of this. She now knows like when, you know, Bezos takes someone into orbit or when another SpaceX like uh, with the super heavy and all that stuff and Starship launches. My grandma, my 94 year old grandmother knows that. Mm -hmm. Right. Because these are people that took giant risks that changed the entire system. And that brings awareness and excitement towards science and technology. And and I hope that we can play a small part like that in biology. I I hope maybe someone, you know, said, oh, I want to go be a geneticist because I thought boy mammoths were cool. And this company made them. And that person like cures cancer or something. I don't know. So, I mean, those, those are the halo effects I think we hope for. Cool. All right. Well, that's about time for us, but we'll definitely be checking back in in 10 years when you have the first mammoth baby. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we hope it's sooner. Sooner, We'll we'll keep you guys, we'll keep you guys informed. If you want to just send me one, that's fine. Just, we won't, Mm -hmm. we won't tell anybody. It'll be just between you. We get, we we, we do get a lot of requests for miniature. (laughs) I'm serious. We get a lot of requests for, yeah. Productize that. That's great. Yeah. All right, Becca, that was our conversation with Ben, who I think you had met before. You mentioned a couple times on the call. I have yet to meet him as of this recording, but we'll be meeting him later this week in Austin, Texas. What did you think about him in general and his entrepreneurial approach? Yeah. No, he's had such an interesting career to follow. He's always seems to be somehow involved with like some of the more interesting sci-fi-esque projects we see in venture that get funding and do end up becoming into sort of real enterprise there. But this one was so interesting to me because I've been following Colossal since they were, I guess, founded. And I'd always just been like, okay, like, yeah, de-extinction's cool, but 
I don't know. I think the company's been really underselling themselves on sort of what this means for conservation efforts and kind of why it's not just necessarily about bringing back the woolly mammoth, Mm. whereas like bringing back the woolly mammoth does X, Y, and Z, which is good for all of these other things. So it's interesting. It's like they're underselling themselves and they come off kind of as a little crazy, but then like actually hearing what they're doing on the back end, it's like, oh, I totally get this now. Like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm interested. I want to see this succeed. Right. When I heard about it the first time and I mentioned this in the thing, like I'm for it in like a way that's just like, this sounds great and weird and go for it. But right. Yeah, when you talk to him, you get to this point where you're like, oh, it also is just like logical that we would do this. But for me, when I think back to why that is, if other people are like, can you explain then the logical? I'm like, I don't think I can. (laughs) I don't remember how I got here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, he clearly, I think, has a natural ability to sell people on ideas, right? Whatever they may be. And I don't think you could put that kind of skill to use in a more ambitious uh, arena. So I think, you know, it is a thing where you're like, you just want to see if people can do it for the sake of how audacious it is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wish them all the luck in the world. You know, I'm so curious about their methodology for how they pick additional animals. Because he got into it and it's like, basically if there's a lot of extant research that is like well-respected in the community, they'll go that way because it gives them a good head start. But I do want them to get into a, a place where they're like accepting submissions for what is the next animal and maybe it's like crowdsourced and you just vote on it. That'll be the next thing that like elementary classes do, like how they name like town buildings and it right. always goes horribly wrong. Like that'll be the next thing. It'll be like this elementary school in Milwaukee is nominating this animal to be the next one to be saved yeah, or something. Yeah. But I just thought that was so interesting because like you said, like thinking about like how do they pick which animals to focus on and stuff like that. Just now I know, I guess, that a lot of scientists out there are working on these efforts with these different animals already. And that's definitely not something that had ever crossed like my sphere prior to this. No, that I wonder too. And, you know, we'll, I think we'll probably actively try to go talk to some of these scientists behind this as well, because I want to hear more about that too. I want to hear about how they got to that. Because I suspect behind the scenes it was like, well, I always wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up because I love whatever. And that just kind of stuck through it. And then it was like, why don't I just bring it back? And then they probably dress it up and like, look, it would be good for all these other reasons. (laughs) But really, they just want to make a childhood dream come true, right? No, because I mean, I'm like, even outside of this realm, I'm just like infinitely fascinated when people have such like a niche focus area, like say, bring back the dodo. Yeah. And it's like, yep, this will be my whole career's work. Right. Like, that's so interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. But we did, we talked briefly about legacy. I would love to get into more of that. Of like, is it is it a play for, like, ego? Is there, a way, is there an element of it that's like, my name will be associated with this in history books forever, right? I feel like, I feel like that would also be a strong motivator for something like this, depending on your for personality. Sure. Yeah. Because whoever does it first, regardless of what animal it is, is going to be like the talk of the town and the science community and beyond for years. Yeah. And I would love, I also wanted to ask him, this is just my regrets, but we'll do a part two with Ben, I'm sure. But I would love to talk to him about, you know, I I should have known this, but I didn't really think about it. But like a lot of what's involved is building a genome that as closely resembles the genome of the animal that's gone as you possibly can get, but using a lot of adaptation of existing 
like non-extinct animals' genomes, right? So it's it's more of a hybridization. I don't know if what you get in the end is like, yes, this is genetically identical to the animal that was gone, or if it's like, this has all the characteristics and attributes of that animal, but it's like, close enough as makes no difference, but it's not actually that, right? Because it's a concoction that mm-hmm. we created. So that leads me to like, are you going to build other crazy things that are new, net new animals, and why not? Or <laughs> why or why not? <laughs> Definitely. No, and I mean, this is definitely a smaller, less intense scale, but I know when you guys had the Bowery farming Mm, guy on and he was talking about all the different breeds of all of the, um, like produce, like strawberries and stuff that like we wouldn't even recognize as them, but they're like, they can genetically modify them and they're all these different things we've never heard of. And I just feel like there's just so much stuff that could come out of this in that way too. Yeah. Well, brave new world, I guess, but we'll see. What they get up to, I guess we'll check back in in 10 years, probably before then, to see how their progress is being made. But yeah, it's it's rare to get so excited about something that sounds so fantastical, because generally cynicism is my default uh, stance for stuff like that. But Ben does a very good mm-hmm. job of, of making you believe that these magical things are possible. So Yeah, I think part of that, too, is the fact that the company, as he joked, like couldn't be more vanilla in structure. Right. Like, you could look at them and take out like what their titles actually did and it would look like any other software company so i think they're built in a way that they can get really crazy because they've got that good foundation which you don't always get for these moonshot companies found is hosted by myself managing editor daryl etherington and TechCrunch plus reporter becca skutak we're produced by maggie stamets with editing by kel bryce durbin is our illustrator Alyssa stringer leads audience development and henry pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products thanks for listening we'll be back next week 